Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone. I'm Patty Jane Geller, the Policy Analyst for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to today's event and thanks for joining us. We have a highly qualified panel ready for an informative discussion, um, but before we jump in, I'm just gonna cover a quick couple of housekeeping items. Um, so this virtual session is being recorded and you'll be emailed a copy of the video within the next couple of days. You're all in listen-only mode, but we'll be able to submit written questions using the question feature on your GoToWebinar dashboard that you should see up on your screen. While you're finding the question feature on your dashboard, I'll also quickly bring your attention to the polls feature. To start off, I invite you to check out and select an answer to our poll question to get you to start thinking about the material we're going to cover today, and I'll report the results later in the webinar. So if you want to take a quick couple of seconds um, to answer the poll, that would be great. So today we're here to talk about challenges to the U.S. nuclear deterrent. The employment of nuclear weapons would be a moral catastrophe, and the United States has been committed to nuclear non-proliferation and eventual disarmament. But growing nuclear threats from increasingly hostile U.S. adversaries required the United States to maintain a modern, flexible, and resilient nuclear deterrent to safeguard the U.S. and its allies. However, failure to modernize the U.S. arsenal has led the nuclear enterprise to deteriorate becoming so serious that a failure to deliver nuclear warhead and delivery systems on time could result in a critical gap in the U.S. deterrent. Today, we have three authors from the new book by the Center for Security Policy Press, Growing Challenges for America's Nuclear Deterrent, here to discuss what it takes to not only deter nuclear attack, but also to assure U.S. allies and partners achieve U.S. objectives if deterrence fails and hedge against future threats. So I'd like to invite our panelists to join us now on the screen. First here with us today, we have Mr. Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Fred served in 2018 as a deputy assistant to President Trump and chief of staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton. He has 25 years of experience with the CIA, DIA, State Department, and the House Intel Committee. We're excited that he's here to join us today. Next, we have Dr. Matt Kranig. Dr. Kranig is the Deputy Director in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He's also a tenured Associate Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Previously, he has held several positions in the U.S. government and is the author or editor of seven books. And finally, we have Dr. Michaela Dodge. Michaela is a research scholar at the National Institute for Public Policy. Before that, she worked here at the Heritage Foundation from 2010 to 2019, focusing on nuclear deterrence and missile defense. She also served as Senator John Kyle, Senior Defense Policy Advisor in 2018. 
So with that, I'm going to quickly hand it over to Fred, who is going to introduce his center's new book. Thank you, Patty Jane. I want to first thank the Heritage Foundation, Heritage President Kay Coles, James, Vice President James Carafano, and you, Patty Jane, for your incredible generosity in agreeing to host this important panel. I've had a chance to meet with Kay, and it's important to her that conservative organizations work together to promote our national security. And I've been privileged since I came to Washington in the 80s to work with the CIA to, to take advantage of the Heritage Foundation's vast resources to keep our nation safe. And it is quite an honor to be here today and to work with Heritage. Um, we started our book off with a quote by General Paul Selva, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in which he said, our nuclear deterrent is nearing a crossroads. To date, we have preserved this deterrent by extending the lifespan of legacy nuclear forces and infrastructure, in many cases for decades beyond what was originally intended, but these systems will not remain viable indefinitely. In fact, we're at the point where we must concurrently modernize the entire nuclear triad and the infrastructure that enables its effectiveness. Well, this is where the Trump administration is, and it reflects their 2018 nuclear posture review. The center was asked uh, last year if we could put together a monograph of experts to talk about this and to support the administration's efforts to modernize and to replace our nuclear infrastructure. And we were able to round up some fabulous experts. In addition to uh, Dr. Dodge and Dr. Kronig, we have Johns Hopkins with Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory, one of the only remaining US nuclear scientists who has witnessed a nuclear test, as well as Frank Afney, the, the founder of the Center for Security Policy and a former Reagan Defense Department official. They talk about why it is crucial to maintain the effectiveness of our nuclear arsenal that we have to consider resuming underground nuclear tests. Peter Hussey, a well-known defense analyst, gives a very good coverage of global nuclear programs from, from, from US enemies. Ambassadors Robert Joseph and Eric Edelman, who are well-known in the arms control community, worked for years within the US government, talk about how arms control agreements that deal with nuclear weapons have to actually promote our national security and deterrence, that arms control cannot be an end in itself. Mark Schneider writes a fascinating article on why we need to develop low-yield nuclear weapons to keep up with Russia and probably uh, China, North Korea, and whatever it is Iran is planning with its nuclear arsenal. And finally, we have a chapter by Dr. Peter Pry, who is uh, Executive Director of the Congressional Electromagnetic, Net Electromagnetic Task Force, who talks about the importance that we recognize that in all likelihood, the nuclear arsenals of, of American enemies are going to be used to make electromagnetic pulse weapons to destroy the U.S. electric system. I think this is a book that's going to significantly help Americans understand the status of our nuclear weapons and why they have to be upgraded. And I'm hoping it will help the Trump administration in its efforts to continue to upgrade and modernize and replace our nuclear infrastructure. Uh, if you want to purchase a, a copy of this book, it is available on Amazon.com, and I would welcome your feedback on it. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and colleague, Dr. Michaela Dodge. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much to Fred and the Center for Security Policy for having me be part of this important project. It was truly a pleasure to work on the chapter and um, 
be part of the effort. Now, I highly recommend that everyone reads the entire book, and especially if you find yourself with some extra time during the quarantine. Thank you to Heritage and Patty Jane for hosting this event. Um, my task was to write an introductory, introductory chapter for the book. In a way, I got an easy task because I could write about many things without having to elaborate in detail on any. But my colleagues uh, writing more specific chapter more than stepped up to the plate to do just that. What I would like to focus on during my talk is to offer some thoughts on challenges facing US nuclear weapons modernization. Arguably, perhaps the most important modernization that we have to get done in the next couple of decades. During the Cold War, we measured adequacy of our nuclear deterrent in several ways, usually in reference to the Soviet Union and its capabilities. For example, we used measures of effectiveness to assess nuclear weapons efficiency. These could be things like throw weight, quantity, relative force size, equivalent megatons, or hard target gill. You can notice that these are heavily quantitative and quantifiable. And I suspect that the mechanistic nature is a derivative of the assured destruction doctrine from which we still haven't quite broken away and the legacy of the arms control process that rewarded countable measures of strategic balance or strategic stability with the Soviet Union. Today, we are planning on modernizing our nuclear forces. Our world is obviously different from that of the Cold War. We deal with multiple nuclear adversaries. We have to consider the importance of nuclear weapons production complex, not only due to overall lower numbers, but also because it's much less capable than it used to be during the Cold War. We ought to understand that our obsession with quantitative nuclear force metrics is insufficient at best and misleading at worst to devise future nuclear postures. Although we don't seem to quite harbor same concerns about quantities of tactical nuclear weapons in which we are vastly inferior to the Russian Federation. Uh, so let me briefly turn to three main challenges to future nuclear force planning. The first one is that our nuclear weapons arsenal is old. It is likely that the average age of the audience watching this event online is younger than the average age of US nuclear weapons. And by weapons, I mean both delivery systems and nuclear warheads. Uh, the last time I checked, the average age of US nuclear warheads was approaching 30 years old. Now, in reality, our warheads are older than that. We have not introduced a new weapon design in almost 30 years, but in its infinite wisdom, the National Nuclear Security Agency resets the age of nuclear warheads after conducting life extension programs on them. This, in a way, um, makes this in a way makes it look like our nuclear warheads are younger than they really are. Second, the fact that we're not in a Cold War requires us to think innovatively about what kinds of nuclear weapons we need to address these new security challenges. At the same time, we have impeded ourselves from doing so since the end of the Cold War. Prescriptions for better and safer future have always called for U.S. nuclear force reductions, 
including unilateral, under the assumption that others would follow. This line of argumentation continues to be popular, even as it is completely empirically discredited. Since the end of the Cold War, the US deactivated and dismantled more than 90% of its nuclear weapons arsenal, stopped producing new nuclear weapons, and let its nuclear infrastructure atrophy. What have our adversaries done? Built up or increased salience of nuclear weapons in their national security strategies. Uh, Peter Husey and Dr. Schneider have a wonderful chapter on, on these developments in, um, in, the, in the edited volume. And our third challenge is cost. We punted nuclear weapons infrastructure modernization for about three decades now. And we simply don't have the luxury to continue doing so unless we choose the path of disarmament by atrophy. Such a path uh, would, lead, uh, would leave us much less secure in a world that no longer plays exclusively by American rules. Um, and such a world would be much worse than our current alternative. And with that, I am looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, Michaela. Um, now I'll hand it over to Matt. Great. Uh, thanks very much, um, Patty Jane. Uh, thanks to Heritage for hosting this event. Uh, and I would also like to thank Fred Flights and the Center for Security Policy for organizing this important volume. Um, I was asked to speak or uh, to write a chapter on uh, the myths of nuclear deterrence. Uh, because this is one of the challenges the United States faces when it comes to modernizing uh, the nuclear arsenal, uh, is critics both uh, in and, and outside of government will say, well, why does the United States need uh, these nuclear capabilities? Uh, does it really need such a large arsenal? Does it need all three legs of the triad? Uh, can't we cut the arsenal? Can't we um, uh, delay modernization and still achieve nuclear deterrence? Uh, and so I, uh, in this chapter, address six myths um, and I'll um, briefly state what those myths are in my presentation today and then explain uh, why I think that they're wrong. Um, so the first myth uh, that we often hear is that a small nuclear arsenal is more than enough for deterrence. Uh, the second myth is that the United States or sometimes the United States and Russia already have more than enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. Uh, so if that's true, why do we uh, need more or newer weapons? Uh, the third myth is that uh, the United States, by modernizing its nuclear arsenal, will undermine strategic stability with Russia and China. Uh, the fourth myth is that uh, by modernizing its nuclear arsenal, the United States will uh, get into an arms race with Russia and China. Uh, fifth myth is that by modernizing its nuclear arsenal, the United States will spur nuclear proliferation. Other countries around the world will want to build nuclear weapons. Uh, and then final myth is that uh, nuclear modernization is too expensive. Uh, so let me address um, each of those in turn. Um, first, the idea that a small arsenal is more than enough for deterrence uh, really depends on uh, your theory of deterrence and your strategy for deterrence. And um, the model that most people have in mind is that um, you know, if the United States has one or two nuclear weapons, uh, if Russia or China attack us, we can uh, nuke Moscow or Beijing um, cause a lot of destruction, and that should be more than enough to deter Russia and, and China. 
Uh, there are a number of problems uh, with that, um, but um, one of the biggest problems is that the United States doesn't do so-called counter-value nuclear targeting. Uh, we don't plan to intentionally kill large numbers of people uh, in a nuclear war. Uh, rather, we do so-called counter-force targeting, uh, planning to use our nuclear weapons against legitimate military targets, command and control, uh, the nuclear weapons uh, uh, bases of, of an enemy, uh, missile silos. Um, and the United States does that for moral reasons, uh, to comply with the law of armed conflict that requires distinguishing between enemy and combatant targets, uh, but also for uh, strategic reasons, uh, to limit damage to the United States uh, and its allies uh, in the event of a nuclear war. Uh, and so if you're doing counterforce targeting, it requires a more robust force. Uh, just having a small arsenal isn't sufficient. Um, in addition, the United States doesn't just deter nuclear uh, attacks on itself. It's unique in this way. Uh, the United States extends deterrence to the entire three, uh, free world. Over 30 formal treaty allies in Europe and Asia depend on America's nuclear weapons for their security. And so um, extending deterrence to the entire free world requires uh, a more robust force than just um, a force to deter attacks uh, on the United States. And so I go into some more detail uh, uh, on this in the chapter about why the United States does need a force uh, roughly the size it has today, if not a little bit larger, uh, with uh, a triad of delivery vehicles uh, and um, you know, 1,550 strategic weapons in addition to non-strategic weapons. Um, second myth is that the U.S. has more than enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. Uh, this is something we often hear of critics of U.S. nuclear strategy. Uh, I debated this point on MSNBC uh, uh, one time, um, but uh, you know there have already been thousands of um, atmospheric nuclear tests that haven't resulted in, in destroying the world many times over. Um, and um, there was a recent study from Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory um, that calculated how many nuclear weapons it would take to kill 100% of the Russian population. Uh, and the number that they came up with was 140,000. Uh, so the United States currently has 1,550 uh, strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, so according to this study, not even enough to kill um, everyone in Russia, uh, to say nothing of destroying the entire uh, world. Um, so not to minimize the destructiveness of nuclear weapons, they are the most destructive nuclear weapon uh, ever produced. Uh, not saying the United States needs 140,000 uh, weapons, uh, but to say, to say that we could destroy the world many times over with the current uh, arsenal, uh, is simply uh, simply not true. A third myth is that um, by having a robust force or modernizing its arsenal, the United States will undermine stability with Russia and China. Uh, and usually the argument people make here is that we'll create a use them or lose them dilemma for Russia or China, uh, that they'll fear that their nuclear weapons could be destroyed in a first attack. And so rather than wait for their nuclear weapons to be destroyed, they'll um, uh, launch a nuclear war first. Um, so superficially, that argument makes sense. If, if you dig into it a little bit, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, why would Russia and China intentionally start a nuclear war with the United States uh, that they would know is going to lead to their destruction because they're a fear, uh, afraid of um, a nuclear war uh, with the United States? Uh, so it's really presenting, a, and it's also presenting a false dilemma. Uh, the choice in the real world is never um, use your nuclear weapons or lose them in a nuclear first strike. Uh, many other options like backing down, uh, negotiating, uh, and I go, go into this in more detail in the chapter. Uh, and historically, we've seen that's what countries do when they're outgunned. They don't intentionally start nuclear wars, they, they back down. 
Um, the idea that U.S. modernization is going to start an arms race with Russia and China, uh, also not true. Uh, this is something that Obama's Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, uh, said very clearly. Uh, Russia and uh, China have advantages over us in uh, certain key areas. Uh, the U.S. modernization is really responding to uh, modernization cycles in, in Russia and elsewhere, uh, so we're not starting an arms race. Um, fifth point, um, people argue that uh, will spur proliferation. If the United States uh, has a large nuclear arsenal, it'll encourage other countries to build nuclear weapons. Uh, but nobody uh, really thinks that Iran or North Korea are um, building nuclear weapons because of the large U.S. arsenal or that if the United States cut the size of its arsenal that uh, North Korea and, and Iran would suddenly stop uh, their nuclear programs. Uh, final point, uh, people say it's too expensive to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal, uh, but it only comes to about 5%. Uh, modernization plans come to about 5% of the U.S. defense budget. Uh, and several secretaries of defense, including Mattis, have said this is the most important uh, priority for the Department of Defense. Uh, so is 5% of the defense budget too much for the most important priority uh, mission? You know, I guess reasonable people can disagree, but to me, that sounds like a good value. Um, so in sum, as, as long as the United States wants to continue to play this important international leadership role, provide extended deterrence uh, to its allies, uh, and comply with the law of armed conflict, then the United States will continue to require uh, a robust nuclear arsenal, will need to modernize uh, as planned, uh, and these myths that we hear about why this would be a bad idea uh, are just that, uh, they're myths. So uh, hope you enjoy the book uh, and hope you get a chance to read the chapter. So thank you very much. Great, thanks so much, Matt, for those remarks. Um, and now finally, I'll pass it along to Fred. Thank you, Patty Jane. Well, it was good to have this discussion before I talk about the NPR led off by Michaela Dodge and Matthew Kronig, and they actually let off the book because Michaela discussed in detail the state of our nuclear arsenal, and Matthew talked about the challenges that administrations have in upgrading our nuclear weapons because of all the disinformation, uh, especially about uh, that upgrading these weapons will cause a nuclear war, that these weapons are are, are too expensive. These are things that the Trump administration, all administrations have to deal with when they come up with a strategy for our nuclear arsenal. Now, a nuclear posture review is a document that has been issued since 1993 in the Clinton administration by every presidential administration on how nuclear weapons are used in our national security and the status of these weapons. The Trump administration NPR came out in, in the fall of 2018 and, and at the beginning, they stress that the administration does want nuclear disarmament. We're committed to that under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but the document makes it clear that that's not possible right now, that we have to adapt our nuclear arsenal to deal with a changing world, with new nuclear players, with new weapons, and with new nuclear doc doctrines. So this isn't simply the fact that we need to upgrade our weapons because they're deteriorating, as, 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 as Michaela discussed, but the world is changing. And that's something that uh, it was taken on very well by this document. Um, concerning the costs of nuclear weapons, in, in the introduction, then Secretary of Defense James Mattis noticed, noted that maintaining our nuclear arsenal only costs about 3% of our defense budget. And, 
an upgrade, in fact, uh, replacing our nuclear arsenal, he thought was going to take about 5% of our defense budget <clears throat> for five years. And he thought this was quite a bargain. It's a lot cheaper than nuclear war. And it, it, is, it is basically something to make sure we have a credible deterrent. And there are concerns right now that because of the deterioration of our nuclear arsenal and new nuclear documents that, that our arsenal is, is becoming less deterrent less of a deterrent. There are two challenges for the Trump administration NPR. One was to address upgrading, modernizing, and replacing our arsenal uh, in light of its deterioration and in light of new threats. But it also was to walk back some of the naive policies of the Obama NPR of 2010, which was based on Barack Obama's road to zero strategy in which he would like to do away with all nuclear weapons and believed that the U.S. made enormous cuts in its arsenal, other nations would simply follow suit. Now, this was extremely naive, as Matthew said, that Iran and North Korea are not going to follow us because we're reducing our nuclear arsenal. And in fact, after the U.S. agreed to the flawed New START Treaty in 2010, it's pretty clear that the Russians aggressively upgraded their nuclear arsenal develop weapons that were not covered by the arsenals, such as uh, hypersonic glide vehicles um, and underwater nuclear drones and, and a nuclear-powered cruise missile that might have an, an almost unlimited range. Well, the U.S. was barred from developing new weapons under the Obama administration and had taken other steps that were simply undermining the credibility of our nuclear deterrent. Fortunately, the Obama NPR was mostly aspirational because of Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who wouldn't go along with, with some of the things that the president wanted to do. And there wasn't support for, the, for these massive changes from Congress. But nevertheless, uh, our arsenal, which was already in trouble, deteriorated further during the Obama years because there was not a priority to basically uh, put in the capital necessary to replace weapons that are decades beyond uh, their, dis their design uh, uh, lifespan. But there also are changes because we have people, we have other nations on the scene that are developing more weapons. So we're, there were reports recently that China may be, may be conducting low yield nuclear tests. There's been reports for years that Russia may be doing this. We know that North Korea has, has, has had five nuclear tests, the last of which in September of 2017 may have been if it wasn't a, 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 if it wasn't a, it was, it was a weapon of maybe 250 kilotons. They'd like to say it was a hydrogen bomb. Experts disagree on that, but nevertheless, uh, 250 kilotons is, is, is a, a huge threat uh, to international security. There's concern that at least Russia and, and probably China and, and other nations are developing low yield nuclear weapons as part of a strategy called escalate to de-escalate. And, and under, under this strategy, uh, the Russians would be calculating that if they were in a battlefield situation, they could employ a low yield weapon knowing that Western states would not dare uh, retaliate with a higher yield weapon and Russia would then win the military encounter. This seems to be part of Russia's doctrine. It may be part of China's, and it is something that the United States is way behind on. And fortunately, the Trump NPR took this on, and uh, in the uh, 2020 NDAA, the, the uh, 2020 defense bill, there actually was funds allocated to start to start developing 
a low-yield nuclear weapon. Part of the road to zero and part of our discussion that comes up in many of our chapters is the New START Treaty. And this is part of the, this is something that the Trump administration is wrestling with right now. This treaty was approved in 2010. Uh, it, has, it, it, it has its flaws. Russia and the United States agreed to basic numbers in the treaty, although there's some disagreement over counting of warheads. But Russia was able to develop some exotic uh, nuclear weapons that were not covered by the treaty continued to spend heavily on upgrading its nuclear arsenal, and it excludes tactical nuclear weapons, where Russia has a 10 to 1 advantage. So right now, th this treaty uh, expires in February 2021, and there's a debate in the administration on where to go next. Now, we've approached the Russians and said that we would like a, a new treaty or an extended treaty that covers all nuclear weapons and includes China. And the Russians were resistant to that. They'd like a one-year extension rather than a five-year, which is allowed under the treaty. Uh, and they, they would like to focus on missile defense. So I think we're pretty far apart on that. But this is a major challenge for the United States. As, as Robert Joseph and Eric Edelman argue in their chapter, when we, when we negotiate nuclear treaties, we have to get treaties that advance our national security and advance deterrence. Arms control negotiations are not an end to themselves. They are not the, the achievement that we're shooting for. We have to actually get these treaties to achieve something significant. So I'm, I'm pleased to say that the Trump administration has been fairly successful so far in getting congressional buy-in for its strategy. And in the 2020 NDAA, Congress approved just about everything the administration asked for to upgrade uh, the uh, U.S. nuclear arsenal. Uh, and this included $2.2 billion to build a fleet of 12 new ballistic missile submarines, $3 billion to build a fleet of at least 100 long-range bombers, and $558 million to build a new ICBM system. There also will be a new air-launched cruise missile. This was a system that was shut down uh, by the Obama administration. This was the, the initial investment on what the United States needs to do to upgrade its nuclear arsenal. And it is a rare example of bipartisanship. Now, the, the, the House did not want to do this and was trying to put forward legislation that basically continued the Obama administration's approach to, to nuclear weapons. But fortunately, on the Senate side, there was bipartisan agreement to support what the Trump administration wanted to do. And in conference, the, the, the Senate bill prevailed. I, I think that was a, a significant achievement. This represented an increase in 23 billion over the previous year. In the 2021 NDAA, the Trump administration is building on this further and has asked for a $48 billion increase in, the nuclear, in its nuclear arsenal. It's crucial that this happen also. Uh, Patty Jane Geller wrote a fascinating article on the Heritage website I encourage you to take a look at on the importance that we continue with our efforts to upgrade and modernize our nuclear deterrent despite other funding challenges like coronavirus. I think that was a very good point. There's gonna be a temptation to cut crucial programs like this because of, of the trillions and trillions of dollars that are being borrowed for uh, a coronavirus, coronavirus stimulus. Uh, but I would close by noting that I think the coronavirus crisis has demonstrated to all Americans that national security, specifically national security preparedness, is serious business. 
And when we have presidential candidates running around saying that the major threat to national security is climate change, and they don't understand the importance of upgrading and maintaining a nuclear arsenal, I think our nation is in trouble. So hopefully this will be a wake-up call for investments to deal with a wide range of legitimate national security threats, especially maintaining our nuclear arsenal. I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation again for, for uh, sponsoring this talk and to uh, the uh, book authors who agreed to be on today, and I welcome your questions. Great. Thanks so much, Fred. Um, I thought that was a great summary of the many issues that Congress and the administration are going to have to face um, to, to get to modernizing our nuclear weapons arsenal. Um, so before I jump into questions, I'm going to go back to the poll that we asked you all. What are the what is the most important challenge facing our nuclear weapons modernization? Um, looks like we had 58% say that it's the age of the nuclear weapons enterprise. 39% um, say it's the myths about the dangers of nuclear deterrence, and 3% um, saying it's the lack of our nuclear weapons testing. Um, I think is interesting. These are all certainly challenges that we have to face um, that I hope you're learning more about from um, our panelists' remarks. So feel free to keep asking questions in the question box. Um, it'll stay open as we go through. Um, I'm going to jump right in now. We have our first question um, from Chris Orr, a current military contractor. Um, he wants to know, what are the latest developments in securing our nation's grid against electromagnetic pulse EMP attack, particularly in light of President Trump's executive order 13865? Um, we know our, our book featured a, a chapter on this topic, so I think this is a good way to start off if one of you wants to take that. It, it's a good question. Uh, the Trump administration, I think, made a real difference in dealing with this issue by the executive order that was issued in the spring of 2019. And uh, this was good because there's been problems getting successive presidential administrations to recognize this threat and to take action on it. Uh, there have been some concerns raised about where the Trump administration is on this because of some major personnel changes last fall. And Dr. Peter Pry has written about this. I think he, I think he was quoted in a political article that uh, he, he's worried whether uh, the personnel in the White House right now have the commitment to continuing the efforts on this. There's a problem here because there are a number of officials within the Defense Department who do not want to take the steps necessary to defend against electromagnetic pulse. Uh, uh, mainstream academics don't like this term. They don't think it's, it exists. I think that the the evidence is pretty strong that it, it that this as a weapon is a significant threat. Uh, so I don't know where this has gone since late 2019 when when Pry was raising concerns about this. Uh, but my hope is that the Trump administration recognizes the threat and will continue to act on the executive order. Great. So our next question um, we have from Greg Schultz. In an emerging era of hypersonic weapons, cyber warfare, proliferation, and potentially persistent pandemic, of course, we're all worried about, do we need to rethink our command and control system completely, our NC3 system? Um, do we need new survivable forces? What do you guys think? You can get us started on this one. 
Uh, we definitely need to modernize our nuclear command and control system. It's something that on a larger scale we haven't done since the 1980s. Um, I think the basis for our nuclear weapons is sound. So we have nuclear triad with long range missiles, bombers and submarines that has served us well. I think what we need to think about is increasing uh, diversity of our nuclear warhead stockpile, because over time we have decreased diversity, which, um, which sort of introduces risks into our nuclear stockpile in that if you potentially find out a problem with one of your designs, you don't have very many to lean back on and a large percentage of your force might be potentially offline. So that's something we definitely need to watch. We do need to build into our future nuclear force posture, flexibility and adaptability. Just because the, the strategic environment is not static, it's fluid. And so what we plan for today might be very different than challenges that we face 30 years from now. 40 years ago, we had no idea that Cold War will end, or we rather, we thought maybe it will end at some point, but we definitely didn't think it was gonna end in 10 years. I'll just add, um, you know, there are a number of ways you could take that question. It, it was talking about um, some of the other threats the United States uh, faces other than nuclear weapons, um, uh, pandemics, uh, conventional hypersonics, um, uh, cyber. Uh, and I think those things are important. And um, because of that, uh, nuclear deterrence is, is more complex. Uh, but sometimes, and the questioner didn't um, insinuate this, but sometimes people will suggest, well, maybe nuclear weapons aren't relevant anymore because we have these other threats uh, to deal with. And um, I would just say that I, I still think that nuclear weapons are uh, remain the ultimate instrument of military force. Uh, you know, there's no other capability that Russia or China have that could destroy uh, U.S. society within uh, within um, uh, you know, 30 minutes. Uh, and so getting nuclear deterrence right, I think, remains uh, the foremost priority of the Department of Defense uh, and of U.S. national security, even as we deal with other challenges like cyber uh, and, and pandemics. Great. Let's see. So... We have our next question um, from Joseph Murphy about the New START agreement, um, which, you know, Fred, you discussed in your remarks, um, and Matt, you and Michaela both referred to the, the arms reductions that um, we've been pursuing with Russia and um, unilateral disarmament as an issue. So I'll ask about New START. What incentive can the Trump administration provide China to enter a trilateral treaty? Um, and if there isn't anything, is it worth not extending the New START agreement while we continue our modernization within the limits of New START? It's a real challenge because China has consistently refused to join treaties like this. It also refuses to join a global INF treaty. The United States withdrew from this under the Trump administration because of Russian cheating and because China was not a party to it. And 80% of their other missiles would have been covered under the INF if there was a global INF treaty. Uh, I think that we have to adapt a new strategy in international arms control fora that China has to own up to its nuclear program and join international treaties to limit it. So far, China thinks that nuclear disarmament is just between the United States and Russia. It doesn't want to talk about its large arsenal. We don't know how many weapons it has. 
We know that they're being modernized. Uh, I, if we aren't able to get China to, to join in, to get a, a, a new START treaty that covers all Russian weapons, that might be acceptable. I think getting China, now whether Russia agree to that or not, I don't know, but that might be acceptable if we can't get China to sign on. I'm on the record of um, not supporting extending of New START treaty um, because the international environment since we signed onto treaty changed dramatically. New START was not a good treaty at the time it was signed, and the passage of time didn't make it any better. Uh, you know, for one, it was a crown jewel of the Obama administration's reset policy with Russia, which ended by uh, with Russian dismemberment of another state uh, in 2014. Um, now, the, the problem with arms control is that it tries to lock you into a static place, whereas what we need is flexibility and adaptability. And so it's a completely different, uh, it's two very different mindset that we need for our future and that we need to take into account as we're setting requirements for our future nuclear forces. I'll maybe just add, um, I, I do think that this old model of uh, arms control uh, is um, quickly becoming outdated. You know, there was a time where West Russia strategic uh, arms control and reduction made sense. Uh, but as the national security strategy and national defense strategy make clear, China is now the number one uh, threat uh, to the United States. Uh, and so uh, does it make sense to uh, uh, negotiate these agreements with Russia when really China is the concern? Uh, I, I would say it doesn't. And then, as I also alluded to in my previous answer, there are other strategic technologies we need to deal with now, not just um, nuclear. And Russia is building um, new types of nuclear systems that uh, arguably aren't covered uh, within New START. Uh, and so I, th I think the agenda does need to be broadened to include um, uh, new weapon systems uh, and to include um, China. Um, how do we incentivize China? Uh, you know, now that the United States is out of the INF and that we're uh, testing and talking about deploying uh, intermediate range missiles in Asia and, and Europe, uh, that's something that might motivate um, China. It's going to be hard, as, as Fred mentioned, uh, but we did see that kind of dual track approach work during the Cold War uh, when the United States brought intermediate range missiles to uh, Europe and made Russia suddenly interested in negotiating limits. Uh, maybe we'll see something similar uh, in um, in Asia. Um, on New Start, um, one of the contributors to the volume is Eric Edelman, uh, and he had an interesting uh, proposal, which was to uh, he wrote this with Frank Miller, uh, which is to uh, agree with the Russians that will extend New Start in exchange for them um, agreeing to help us negotiate a broader deal with China uh, that includes other technologies. Um, and that if China or if Russia doesn't agree with that, then we can always uh, cease our compliance uh, with New START. Um, so that's um, one of the kind of middle options between um, just simply extending uh, or um, uh, killing New START is uh, trying to use it uh, for leverage because the Russians uh, really want this extended. Um, Democrats in Congress really want this extended. And so I think the administration uh, does have some leverage to do some uh, creative things uh, if it wants to.
Great. So our next question, um, we'll shift gears a bit. We have from Ken Rock. Um, to what extent does missile defense contribute to our nuclear deterrence? Great, I'll start, start on that one. one. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, actually, missile defense, I think, is a very important um, effort supporting our nuclear deterrent and especially our extended deterrent. Um, we are now developing and deploying regional missile defense architectures, particularly in Europe, uh, in South Korea, in Japan to address different kinds and different classes of ballistic missile threats. We're using US homeland missile defense systems to sort of take cheap shots off the table for North Korea, for Iran, countries that have repeatedly stated they're interested in destroying the United States and attacking the United States homeland, and that continue to pour significant resources into their ballistic missile program and into their nuclear weapons programs. Uh, and so it absolutely does contribute um, to our deterrence efforts, both regionally and both um, from the perspective of US homeland defense. Now, if there is one criticism that I do have of US missile defense efforts, it is that we decided that we would not be vulnerable of, um, to North Korea's or Iran's long-range ballistic missiles, but we are quite hesitant to extend the same logic to China and Russia, uh, which just, it's not a logically consistent position. And I think we owe better than that to the American people who by and large think that they are already defended from these types of threats. The current U.S. missile defense system is de is deployed to defend against rogue state nuclear missile attacks, not against Russia or China. Now, I agree that that may sound illogical, but uh, Russia knows this and has still made missile defense uh, a, a sticking point in any negotiations with the United States, even though uh, this this system obviously has nothing to do with Russia's huge arsenal. It's too small to stop Russia's arsenal and is defending us against rogue states that don't threaten Russia. And I, I think this is going to continue. It's a consistent position of the Russians, uh, and it's something we're going to have to deal with uh, as we continue to move forward with negotiating New START, assuming that we do that. Just, just two lines. Um, often critics of U.S. missile defense policy say this, this is a big waste of money. Missile defense technology doesn't work. Um, if you look at the test record over the past um, uh, several years and the battlefield effectiveness of some of the theater uh, systems, you can see that that's no longer true, uh, that the effectiveness of these systems is um, uh, greatly increasing. Um, not perfect, but um, if you can reduce the chances of a strategic uh, uh, attack reaching the United States or its allies by a significant margin, uh, that, that's important. Uh, and there are also new technologies that the United States is exploring that could uh, further uh, in increase the effectiveness of US missile defense, including directed uh, energy, uh, a new uh, space-based sensor layer. Uh, and so I think missile defense will um, continue to be uh, an important and maybe an increasingly important part of US defense policy. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna quickly follow up on that. Matt, in your chapter, you talked about 
the myth of um, arms races and the United States is starting an arms race by modernizing its system or advancing its arsenal or um, developing missile defenses. Um, can you or any of you address the claim that um, US missile defense is what's driving Russia to develop its new exotic delivery systems? Um, if, you, if you think that's true, if you think that you know it's it's a bad idea to pursue missile defense for because it can cause an arms race. Um, what do you think? Yeah, good, uh, good question. And um, I, I have a recent report actually with the Atlantic Council on Russia's exotic systems and what are some of the motivations. Um, the um, uh, we brought together a number of experts to discuss this, and and people had differing opinions. One of the theories is that it is about uh, beating U.S. missile defense. Um, Another uh, theory that this is about um, Russia just flexing its muscles on the international stage. Uh, it wants to be seen as a great power. It doesn't have much to offer other than nuclear weapons. Um, it can't really compete in new technologies like artificial intelligence and other things. Um, so taking some of these ideas that the United States developed in the 1960s, uh, like a nuclear powered nuclear cruise missile, uh, you know, things that we discarded because we thought they were impractical, picking up these decades old ideas and uh, putting them into practice uh, could be one way for Putin to say, we're still a major power, we're doing things not even the United States is doing. Uh, so a lot of it might be posturing for international uh, and domestic um, audiences. Um, but on the idea of the arms race, you know, Russia and China have been uh, doing a lot of this without any prodding from the United States. Um, as Fred pointed out in the Obama administration, um, the United States was reducing reliance on uh, strategic weapon systems, and we saw China, Russia, uh, and others go in the other direction. Um, and, um, you know, when it comes to these, this arms race issue, um, uh, you know, China, uh, North Korea uh, have essentially opted out of trying to compete with the United States at the highest um, strategic uh, levels. It's, it's really only Russia that you can say maybe there are some arms race uh, dynamics. Uh, but if you read uh, the New York Times, you know, anytime the United States uh, announces some new defense system, it's, it's going to lead to an arms race. It's kind of a lazy trope uh, of people who I, th I think don't follow these issues very closely. Um, if you look at the reality, it's uh, much more complicated. And if anything, it's often the United States responding to uh, some of these new things that uh, Russia is doing, uh, not, um, not causing uh, an arms race. I will just add too that after the U.S. withdrew from the ABM Treaty, the United States and Russia uh, went on to sign Moscow Treaty, which capped uh, U.S. and Russian strategic weapons at the lowest range ever. Um, Putin, uh, President Putin, Russian President Putin, he al also repeatedly stated that U.S. missile defense will have no impact on Russian strategic systems. And so you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it that U.S. missile defense is driver of everything and anything under the sun, at the same time having a leader of other country, uh, other peer competitor or other major competitor saying that U.S. missile defenses don't matter. But what the Russians really, really do not like about U.S. missile defense systems is in the context of U.S. extending deterrence to countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, Russia really doesn't like that U.S. missile defense presence in Romania and Poland uh, makes it more difficult to project its influence on, onto those countries. Uh, it, it is not a military capability problem. It's a political problem for the Russians. 
Great. Um, so our next question is from John Harvey. Thanks for joining us this morning. What, in your view, are prospects for continuing bipartisan consensus on nuclear modernization? And what do you think a call to return to nuclear explosive testing would have on that fragile consensus? That's I'll a very good one. question. Uh, well, I want to start with something on that. Um, the low yield weapons, that the fact that this got through the Senate was quite a surprise and it was a, a welcome surprise. But I think uh, starting underground U.S. tests is going to be enormously controversial, and there may not be support for that. I might also said that might also say that in terms of consensus, not all Democrats in the Senate agree with the Trump NPR. It passed, but there's some significant uh, dissenters, and I think that they are going to dissent much more loudly if the Trump administration moves forward for underground nuclear tests. All right, I'll. I'll piggyback and maybe disagree slightly. Uh, I, I think it depends on why are we returning or why would we be returning to nuclear weapons testing? Is it because we discovered a significant problem in one of our nuclear warheads and we have no other way to find out what is happening uh, but to use some kind of very low yield experiments in laboratory conditions perhaps not releasing as much energy as if you drop a pencil on the floor. Um, and you, it was you, Dr. Harvey, who said that, you know, the Obama administration's position was not to completely preclude nuclear weapons testing should we need it. It's just that the preferences would be given to um, other approaches to nuclear warhead maintenance. And I think that's a consistent position that's carried over for administrations, you know, since we had the CTBT debate. And so if we were to just restart nuclear weapons testing with no good reason, obviously that would be not, that would just not be a good idea uh, in terms of congressional consensus, in terms of US international leadership, whatever you wanna call it. If there are serious significant reasons for why we need to do that, then we absolutely should be doing it. Our, our security depends on, um, on nuclear warheads working as, uh, as we think they would be. Maybe I'll just add, uh, John, thank you uh, for uh, listening in and thanks for your uh, important contributions in, in this area. Um, I would say I, I do think maintaining um, a bipartisan uh, coalition uh, is, is important in this area because uh, these modernization programs are going to play out over the course of decades. Uh, and so um, uh, political power in Congress and in the administration is going to shift. And so uh, you do need a bipartisan coalition to sustain modernization. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with um, Michaela that it depends on the um, circumstances. You know, there were many people saying that this Trump administration call for low yield nuclear weapons for expanded missile defense uh, was going to undermine uh, this bipartisan coalition. Uh, and as Fred pointed out, we, we have instead seen support uh, for the full uh, or, uh, modernization program so far uh, in Congress. So I, I think with testing, it really depends. Um, if there is um, good uh, reason and uh, you can make the case, uh, then I think um, uh, reasonable people on, on both sides can be persuaded. Yeah, I agree. I think testing is a tricky topic because as Michaela said, if we find the need to resume testing, if we 
have an issue. Um, I know there's a great chapter in this book about that goes into all of the requirements we would have to meet to resume our nuclear testing. And of course, getting bipartisan consensus um, is a big one of them in my view. Um, so thanks for asking that question. We have time for one, maybe two more. Um, next, I'm gonna take a question from Jacob Byorth. Sorry if I got that wrong. Um, so this is about Russia's new exotic delivery systems going back to those. Um, how reliable do you think the new systems are for Russia giving the recent accidents during their testing? Um, assume that's referring to the nuclear powered cruise missile test recently. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'll just add how, how worried should we be about these weapons? How will they affect our nuclear deterrence strategy? Uh, well, I can go first, I guess, since I just um, did a report. Um, first, you know, some people say, well, um, you know, these are just um, uh, crazy ideas. This is Russia propag Russian propaganda. Uh, this is never going to work. The, the tests are failing. Um, I, I would say that these are real programs. Russia is spending money and bending metal. Uh, the, these aren't just, um, you know, concepts or, or design uh, studies or propaganda. Uh, these are real programs. Um, failed um, tests are, uh, on one hand, they show failure. On the other hand, uh, you learn from failed tests and, and you get better. So I think at some point, um, uh, these will be um, uh, real systems in the Russian arsenal. I think there are a number of um, reasons to be concerned. One is a Russian attempt to try to maintain or acquire a kind of strategic superiority, you know, uh, building tactical nuclear weapons, building new strategic systems that aren't covered by New START, and then locking us in place with new start. Uh, that could be uh, one reason that this is concerning. Um, also, I think it raises some questions about um, our ability to um, defend against these systems. Damage limitation is an important part of US nuclear strategy has been since at least the 1970s. Uh, and so do we have the ability to um, uh, hold at risk the nuclear powered uh, nuclear cruise missile um, uh, and the uh, nuclear torpedo uh, drone uh, so I think those are some uh, questions that deserve uh, further uh, further research. Uh, and also, I think uh, just the perception, you know, a lot of deterrence and extended deterrence and assuring allies uh, is about the credibility that the United States uh, can deter, will respond to nuclear attack. Uh, so with Russia flexing its muscles like this, I think it uh, frightens some of our European allies uh, and um, is, is really what Putin's going for, trying to coerce and intimidate uh, the United States and its its allies. I, I agree with Matt. I, I will add that there might be potential silver lining in all of these sort of exotic Russian programs, which is um, it, it's sort of the legacy of the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union was developing multitude of different systems and it created inefficiencies uh, in its defense complex uh, because of inherent corruption in the system and because they had to uh, maintain uh, 10 different ICBM maintenance lines and 10 different training pipes and all of that, further uh, making the corruption problem and inefficiency problem worse. And so if there is potential silver lining in terms of Russia developing all of these different uh, programs, it is that it perpetuates this problem and creates inefficiency and corruption opportunities in the system uh, and um, the, the benefit of it is that they're not focusing all of the resources they could 
on their best systems that are already working that then we'd have to worry about. And so, you know, the this exotic systems, they're worrisome, we need to take them into account. Um, but we also should sort of think competitively about whether they're really creating new problems for us and whether the costs that Russia is investing in them uh, might be beneficial to us um, relative to Russia spending those resources in other ways, creating even more problems for us. I would add, it's not just these new novel weapons we have to worry about, it's the extensive expenditure that Russia has put into modernizing and, and, and maintaining its current arsenal, which the US hasn't been doing, and developing low yield weapons, which gives it options on the battlefield that we may not be able to respond to. And nuclear testing, something nobody really wants to think about, is to deal with the reality that we have weapons decades past their design lives. We don't know that they work. We've lost expertise in nuclear weapons. It's the experts are retiring and dying off. It's going to be uh, a, a, a huge controversy if we do decide to resume nuclear testing. But please read John Hopkins' article in our book on why this is essential. We we think other states are already secretly testing the Chinese and the Russians, and uh, for us to maintain the credibility and reliability of, of our nuclear deterrent. Uh, I think testing is essential. Great. So we are just, well, we are out of time now. Um, thanks to everyone who joined us on our webinar. Those were some great questions. Looks like we got to cover um, a, a whole array of topics today. And, and thanks to our three panelists, Fred, Matt, and Michaela. You guys are great. Um, definitely recommend you check out the book and read more about um, the details of what we talked about today. Fred, if you want to give us one more reminder of how we can get the book, we've had some questions about um, where to access it. Yeah, our book, Growing Challenges for America's Nuclear Deterrence, is available on Amazon.com. Uh, and you know, Heritage was going to host this in their auditorium today, and I was going to hand out copies, a limited number of copies. So uh, you guys are so generous. I'm sorry I wasn't able to do this, uh, but uh, please check it out, and I welcome your feedback on it. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.